Very good. Well, let me start here this morning with a question. Who's on your side this morning? I wonder, how many know who this is? Most of us know who that is, probably. That's Michael Jordan, considered maybe the greatest player in professional basketball of all time. Um, A lot of people know him. That's the debate that he is the best ever. I wonder how many know this person. His name is um, Gary Spence. From his uh, website, Uh, Gary Spence has built his legacy on defending ordinary people against big corporations and the government. Spence did not lose a civil case from 1969 to 2010 and has never lost a criminal case. Wow, pretty impressive for a lawyer, right? And then, who knows who this is? That's uh, Bobby Flay. He's all over the cooking channel, one of the world's best chefs. He's got his own show, Beat Bobby Flay, where other chefs come in and try to outcook him. And it's a kind of a fun little show there. And uh, pretty fascinating. And so I was thinking about this. Let's just suppose you were putting together a charity basketball uh, team for a charity basketball tournament. Wouldn't you love to have Michael Jordan on your team, right? Even if he is retired. Or, or maybe, just maybe, uh, someone was suing you for a million dollars. Wouldn't you like to have Gary Spence as your lawyer? I think I might. <laughs> that might be good. Or let's just say you, you were maybe in a... In a cooking contest, and you could win a lot of money in a cooking contest, wouldn't you love to have Bobby Flay on your side of the kitchen uh, helping cook on your team? I think we would. Who is on your 
side. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about this as we wrap up this series we've been in, God's Resolutions for the New Year. We're going to wrap it up today with the, the, the message today is the, that, that, that uh, the God who is on your side. And the reality is, while Michael Jordan isn't on your basketball team and Bobby Flay is not in your kitchen and, and Gary Spence probably isn't going to argue your court case, the reality is there is a God who can be on your side. There's a God who is on your side and will be on your side, and we're going to look at what that looks like this morning. Uh, the reality is we've been in this series now for nine weeks talking about really the futility of New Year's resolutions because statistics overwhelmingly prove that our, st- our New Year's resolutions fail us because we fail them. It's that simple. We set New Year's resolutions and they quickly get broken and they really don't bring the success that we want. And this message is really based on this verse here in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul writing, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And uh, that's not the English Standard Version, that's the uh, Berean Standard Version there, I should say, Berean Study Bible. But the reality is, is that Paul did not have like a whole list of resolutions. Paul had one resolution. It was the gospel. In Paul's world, the gospel was the answer to absolutely everything. And I think that's kind of the approach of our church and our preaching here is that we believe the gospel is the answer to everything. And so we're going to talk about that as we wrap this series up today. And the, the big idea of this whole series um, has been, and there's the, the, the only resolution Paul had was the gospel. It's one resolution on his list of New Year's resolutions that never changed year to year, day to day. It was the gospel. But our big idea for this series is simply this. God is more committed to me than I am to him. And I, I remember back in week one of this series when I came up with this as like the big idea for the message in week one. And I'm like, that's a really stupid statement. I mean, it's like, duh. I mean, who doesn't know that? But as I thought about it, and I can see why God drove this uh, into this whole series, because we know that, but we just don't live that way. We live most of our life thinking about how committed am I to God, and it's all about my commitment to God and what I will do for Him before it is what He has done for me and how committed He is to me and what He wants to do in my life. And so I think it's a really powerful uh, reality to stop and focus on how committed God is to us. So as I said today, we're talking about the God who is on your side. We're in Romans chapter 8, and it's going to be a great morning because we're in Romans 8. And I'm telling you, Romans 8 is like maybe the greatest chapter in the Bible. Well, that's my opinion, but uh, we know Romans is like Paul's great theological in the gospel, and we just know that uh, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, what a powerful uh, string of chapters in the Bible. I know the whole Bible. You can't really pit the Bible against itself, but just listen to these verses here, and Ben read them earlier. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's question number one. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Another question there. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Another set of questions there. And then finally, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. And then finally, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Another question. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then he answers it down in verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So just a handful of verses there, and there's four questions that Paul raises, and we're going to look at those today as we talk about the God who really, this is really part two of last week's message. We talked last week about the God who fights for you. This is like part two of that message. God is on your side. 
God is on your side. Now, let's be honest. We can make, you can make an argument that God is not on our side, that God's on his own side, right? You could make that argument, and uh, I kind of made that argument to myself because that is kind of, an, in a sense, true, especially if you don't know Christ as your Savior, right? The Bible says if, if, if you have rejected God and you have said no to him, basically the Bible says in Romans 5, you're an enemy of God. I mean, that's pretty harsh, right? But God's basically saying if you have not accepted me, received me, believed in me, put your faith in me, then you're really my enemy. Romans 5 explains what that looks like. And so, but here's the reality. God can be on your side. Back during the, uh, I guess there's the big question today. Am I on God's side? That's the question we all need to kind of ask. Am I on God's side? Am I on God's team? Is God then on my team? And on my side. That's kind of the way this will work this morning. During the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was asked if he thought God was on the side of the Union in the war. Lincoln responded, it doesn't matter if the Lord is on our side. What matters is that we are on the Lord's side. Interesting kind of thought there. But it does matter if God's on our side. It does matter, especially in this spiritual battle. And so this morning, we can start with this simple reality. God is on your side if you are on His God is on your side if you are on His. And how do we get on God's side again? How do we get on God's side? Number one, it's really simple, right? There's, there's no work involved in getting on God's side to believe you are a sinner who has wronged a holy God. That's not very hard to know that I'm a sinner. God's holy. Number two, to, number two is to believe that Jesus was God, that He died on the cross for your sins, that He rose from the grave to save you and just... I believe that. Jesus went to the cross, died in my place, rose from the grave to save me from my sins. And then, number three, to receive into your heart the forgiveness and the life of Christ. That's it. That's the gospel right there. That's the answer to everything right there. I know that's pretty dumbfounded, right? It's like, that's the answer to everything. It is. To receive Christ, his forgiveness, and his life. And uh, that's the gospel, and that's how we're saved. And uh, I think that's pretty powerful to stop and think about. Believe, believe, and receive, and that's it. You're not saved. You don't get on God's, God's side by your good deeds, by your hard work, by your faithful commitment, but by believing and receiving. In fact, maybe you've seen this picture before, right? This is the picture that's kind of like we're over here and we're lost and there's this gulf between us and God and to get to God's side, we need the cross. We cross over through the cross. Here's today's big idea. God fought for me so he could fight for me. God fought for me so he could fight for me. Or God fought for me so he could fight for me. However you want to say that. But the the reality is this, is that God fought for us on the cross. He went to the cross and died for us. He fought for us because he wants a relationship with us so he can come in and then he can fight for us in this spiritual battle that we're all in. Everybody in the world's in a spiritual battle. Everybody is caught up in sin and and temptation and things we'll look at today. There's a spiritual battle going on and God can be on your side. He can be fighting for you in this spiritual battle if you're on his side. Now, let me me tell you what this is not saying. When I say that um, God is on our side if we're on his side, I'm not saying this. I'm not saying, well, God fights for you if you fight for him. I'm not saying that. That's the whole point of this series. That's not the way it works. God's not fighting for me because I'm fighting for him. God's not responding to me. It's always I respond to God, right? God loved me, so I love him, right? We love because he first loved us. We serve because he first served us. It's always I'm responding to him. So it's not like, well, God will fight for you if you fight for him. No. 
It's like God fought for me so he could come and fight for me every single day. And I can just simply trust him and the work that he wants to do in my life. So four tactics today of the devil where God fights for us. And these are the four questions there in Romans 8, 31 through 35. I'm not going to take them specifically in order, but it'll make sense as we go through it again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so the first thing we see here, the first word, the first tactic is temptation. And just know that when I am tempted, Jesus is my deliverer. Jesus delivers me when I'm tempted. Just know that. He gives us, it says here, right, he will get, graciously give us all things. And one of the things he gives us is this way out of temptation, this, this ability to fight temptation through Jesus Christ. And so just know this year in 2022, we're in a spiritual battle, you will be tempted. To do things you don't want to do, even if you're not a believer. You'll be tempted to do things you don't want to do, things that will destroy your life. And the reason this is so important to know and consider is that when we are tempted, what happens immediately, even for the believer, immediately when we're tempted, what happens is we start feeling guilty that we were tempted. It's like we somehow think that every thought we get is our thought. And we're like, wow. And so we need to understand that just because we're tempted doesn't mean I need to pull away from God and get distant from God and feel like, oh, I'm a terrible person that I was tempted. No, that's the tactic of Satan to tempt us. He tempts us. We'll see more about that as a tactic in a a few minutes. But here's the reality. In, In other words, we don't see God as someone who will fight for us in our temptation, but judge us for it. And that's the very wrong attitude to have. So we need to know that. We need to understand that. 2 Timothy 2.22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So we're supposed to flee something, right? But then we flee to something. So temptation means I, I, I run to Christ, not away from Him. Like I flee the temptation and I, I flee the, the passions and the sin and I run towards Christ because He wants to fight for me in this spiritual battle. And uh, that's the simple reality. So a couple things here about this temptation that we see, okay? Again, it can either uh, drive me to Christ or away from Christ. Temptation can do one of two things. It needs to draw me to Christ, not away from Him. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, there's just three little verses here that can be helpful in understanding our temptation. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. If God's on your side, if God's fighting for you, God's going to help you when you face temptation. He's going to help you face temptation. And there's a couple things in here. First thing he, we see is that all, we, we all face a common temptation. Like the temptation you face is really no different than the temptation I face. And uh, yeah, we all face a common temptation. I said last week that Satan doesn't really have a lot of ammunition. Like there's not a, an overwhelming amount of ammunition that Satan has. He lies about how things began. He lies about God. He lies about us. Uh, he lies about our circumstances. That's about it. He just finds different ways to lie about them. And uh, that's the simple reality. But, but here's the thing. When, when you think about uh, Satan and how he, how he lies and his tactics, every, the Bible says that all sin and all temptation has three roots. 
The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Everything comes out of one of those three areas. So all sin, all temptation is very common. Here's a, here's a few of the common temptations that we're thrown and given. We're tempted to doubt God, to be a victim, to be selfish, to gratify the flesh, to love money, to complain, to be jealous, to be proud, to be self-sufficient, or to trust and depend on something or someone other than God. Those are some of the common temptations you and I are going to face every day in our life. And for the believer, let me just tell you something that you might miss in that list for the believer. You know what that, ble- that list says to us about temptation? That list says to us that, 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 that those are not my, my default position or, or my natural desires. In Christ, as a new creation in Christ, I don't want to do those things. So I'm like Adam and Eve in the garden and I am tempted to do those things because that doesn't come natural to me. I'm a, I, I want to do what Christ wants. Now there's all kinds of temptation around me. Satan, the sin, uh, Satan's sin, the flesh, everything tempting me and pulling me away from what I really want to do. It's just, we just need to understand that as a believer that is our re- reality of our, of our nature in Christ. We don't want those things but we're certainly tempted to do them and our old man thinking certainly gives in. Now you want to know how common this temptation is? Look at this verse here. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And Hebrews 4 there is simply telling us the temptation we face is so common, even Jesus faced it. Like all the temptation you face, Jesus faced it. That's why he came to earth. That's why he walked on the earth for 33 years as a man before he died on the cross so he could experience your life, experience your temptations. And on the cross, he, 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 just, he, he t- took everything on the cross. And here's the reality. The point is, is that Jesus didn't receive like a super-duper, uh, supernatural extra kind of temptation. He faced our temptation. He just received a greater dose of it. We can put it that way. He received an incredibly greater dose of it. But the temptation he faced was everything like I just read off that list. And the other thing we see here then in 1 Corinthians is, is that Jesus is the way out of temptation. Jesus, then, is the way out of temptation. He's the way of escape. Like God says, I'll, make a, I'll provide a way out, and that way out is Jesus. We said last week that really the armor of God that it talks about in Ephesians 6 is really the identity of Christ. It's, it's, our, it's, it's, our, it's the Christ life at work in me. It really is. And so understand here, the way out of temptation is simply Jesus. He's the way out of temptation. In fact, here's a couple of examples that can help us understand this. Again, with the temptation, He, God, will also provide the way of escape. And the way of escape, I'm saying, is Christ. He's the way out of temptation. And, for instance, the helmet of salvation protects my thoughts. I put on the helmet of salvation, and I think with the mind of Christ, and it protects my thoughts. That I realize all those thoughts are not my own. Those unholy thoughts are not mine. It reminds me of who I am in Christ. And it protects me because most of the battle is fought up here in our brain. So we need the helmet of salvation. We need to think like Christ to win the spiritual battle. And then the breastplate of righteousness protects my pure heart. We read that earlier. I don't think I put it back on here. But, I, but earlier we read that verse there in 2 Timothy 2. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and patience. 
along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You have a pure, if you know Christ as your Savior, you have a pure heart. He's giving you a brand new heart. It's a pure heart. And this breastplate of righteousness protects our heart from the attacks of the enemy that wants to tear us down and tell us we're someone or something that we are not. Hmm. So Jesus is the way out of temptation. Even after we fall to temptation, he's the way out of temptation to stop the sin so we don't double down and fall into greater and greater defeat and regret. Focusing on him and putting on the spiritual armor will protect your thoughts, attitudes, and your desires. I thought this was fascinating. Uh, this is from John Ortberg. He, he tells this story. Recently, my wife and I went fly fishing for the first time. Our guides, excuse me, our guides told us that to catch a fish, you have to think like a fish. They said that, that to a fish, life is about the maximum gratification of appetite at the minimum expenditure of energy. To a fish, life is, is uh, see a fly, want it, a fly, eat a fly. A rainbow, a rainbow trout never really reflects on where his life is headed. A, a girl carp rarely says to a boy carp, I don't feel you're as committed to our relationship as I am. I wonder, do you love me for me or just for my body? The fish are just a collection of appetites. A, a fish is a stomach, a mouth, and a pair of eyes. While we were on the water, I was struck by how dumb the fish are. Hey, swallow this. It's not the real thing. It's just a lure. You, you think it will feed you, but it won't. It'll trap you. If you were to look closely, uh, if you were to look closely, fish, you would see the hook. You know, once you were hooked, that it's just a matter of time before the enemy reels you in. You think fish would wise up and notice the hook or see the line. You think fish would look around at all their fish friends who go for a lure and fly off into space and never return. But they don't. It is ironic. We say fish swim together in a school, but they never learn. Aren't you glad we're smarter? Well, it's true. We're all tempted by common temptations, and we do dumb things. We need we need Christ to deliver us. We need the mind of Christ in particular to, to just protect our thoughts so we aren't taken captive by the devil. First word is temptation. And again, God fought for me. Fought for me on the cross so he could fight for me. So he could fight for me every day. He wants to be the one to fight for me as I uh, face, face temptation. And then the second word today, look at this next verse down in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We go from temptation to tribulation to tribulation, and we've talked about this already in the series a little bit, but here's the reality. When I am hurting, the Father comforts me. When I am hurting, the Father, He comforts me. And so again, He just says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No. Tribulation certainly will not separate us from the love of Christ. But just know this year, one of the tactics Satan's going to use is tribulation and hardship and difficulty and adversity. He's going to bring it into your life. He's going to use it to bring you down. It's one of his tactics. And just know that if God's on your side, he will comfort you. He will wrap his arm around you. The common question here, I know it's, it's the common question. Well, if, if God's on my side, why does he let me go through suffering? I mean, come on. And sometimes it's like, is God really on my side? I'm going through a really hard time. I thought God was on my side. And I made a point too a couple weeks back in the series here that's really relevant and helpful this morning. It's this, remember this? Some things are worth suffering for. And we all know this is true. 
You ask that person, that, that football player that played in the Super Bowl with the cracked rib and it really hurt, but it's the Super Bowl, baby, and I'm playing in the Super Bowl. Or that, that Olympic athlete that trains until it pains because he wants that gold or she wants that gold medal. There are some things in life that are worth suffering for. And God knows that. And so we, he lets us go through suffering sometimes because there are things worth suffering for. And the truth is, the issue is sometimes we don't see the value of our suffering until the dust settles and until the battle is over. But the reality is there is a value in our suffering, that <clears throat> a worth in our suffering we don't always recognize. And the cross proves that, right? Because you and I, Jesus said, were worth his suffering. He suffered on the cross because we were worth it. Second, uh, yeah, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We read a few verses here, and I'll just make four quick observations that'll help you understand the value and worth of our suffering. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. See, if God's on your side, you have the Father of mercies, you have the God of all comfort fighting for you, and He will comfort you. He goes on here, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that you are, we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. What a powerful passage. Four reasons why our suffering is worth it as we learn something about God in our hardships. There is something about God we learn. We learn he's a father who comforts us. Go figure. The God of the universe. And in fact, the reason we have all our earthly relationships down here, we have brothers and sisters down here. You know why? So we'll know what it's like to have brothers and sisters in the family of God. And we have fathers down here on earth. Why? So we will understand that God is a heavenly father. And he comforts us in our hardships. And we don't maybe always see God that way, but he is. And maybe you've had a, a father that failed you in life, so it's hard to look at God and see him as a father. But you need to. He's the God you always wanted. We learn something about ourselves and our hardships. I mean, just think about that. We, we, we realize to a degree how weak we are, how frail we are, how easily we can fall. We, we learn how much we need God and His strength. We, we learn how quickly we can doubt God. You see, our sufferings can really humble us before a holy God, can't they? They really humble us. And we learn a lot about ourselves going through suffering the truth is, if we let God take us through the suffering, though, He will grow our faith. He will mature us in Christ. He'll make us stronger. And note this, we also learn that as we grow, we can handle more and more adversity. 
And you might think, well, why would I want to handle more and more adversity? Because there are some things in life that are worth suffering for. And the more adversity you can handle, the more blessings you may end up realizing because of the value of what comes on the other side of that suffering. We learn to rely on God in our hardships. I'm just reading this thinking, this is Paul, the the one who writes all these books in the Bible and had so much hope. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that we, that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Don't you love the the, the juxtaposition there? Like, we thought we'd receive the sentence of death, but our hope is in a God who raises the dead. Woohoo! How great is that? How great is that? We learn in our hardship to rely on God, not just on ourself. And then our Father helps us process our pain to the point of purpose. Like here, look what he said in verse 4. Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You know what he's saying there, right? He's saying there that you go through things in life and you go through adversity and hardship and the value of that, of, of that suffering that you go through, there's a value and worth and sometimes it's for somebody else. Somebody you're able to reach out and help somebody else in their suffering because they're going through what you went through. Like maybe you're in the room and you've been through a miscarriage or maybe you've lost a child you know, at a young age or something. I know that people have experienced those things. Maybe you've been through financial hardship. Maybe you've been through cancer. Maybe you've been through divorce. All kinds of adversity. And the reality is we go through those things and then God says, now as you process what you've gone through, I'll find a deeper purpose in that and there's somebody else out there that you can minister to that's going through that same thing. And they, don't, they don't, may not even know Christ. You may be able to help someone find Christ through your suffering and pain. And I would say, yeah, there are some things we're suffering for. If someone can come to Christ through my suffering, you know what that is, don't you? That's the cross. That's the gospel. We all came to Christ through what? Through his suffering. And we get to go out in the world and do the same thing. How amazing is that? I was thinking this week about just like with divorce. Okay, let's take divorce. There are some people in their theology, in their Bible theology, have no space and no grace for divorce. And I thought, you know, the reality is we're going to go through divorce. In this world, you're going to have relationships that fail and don't make it. You're going to have it. And, and even in the church and even if you know Christ, it can happen to you. And the reality is, is that if you go through the, if you, if you go through the, 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 the desert of divorce and that journey, it just well could be that if you know Christ, he'll walk you down that journey so you can help someone else walk down that journey. So certainly... It it will happen even if you know Christ. Those kinds of things happen. Difficulty happens. And God uses those things to minister to other. Let God take your pain and your grief and whatever adversity and use it for his glory. Romans 8.18, earlier in the same chapter, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in, to us. And so all the adversity in this world, someday we'll get to heaven, and it's going to give, put this eternal perspective to all of our suffering, and we're going to say, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was worth it. Whoa, that was worth it. It was tough, it was hard, but it was worth it. Because God was fighting for me, right? God fought for me so he could fight for me. If God's on your side, he's fighting for you in this spiritual battle. And the God who fights for you is the God who comforts you. How awesome is that as well? So temptation, tribulation, 
Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Accusation. Temptation, tribulation, and a third tactic Satan will use this year is accusation. He's going to accuse you. He's going to come along and he's going to point the finger at you and he's going to accuse you. And when I am accused, the Spirit defends me. The Spirit defends me. And the reality is, why does Satan lob so many accusations at us? Because they're so effective. Because they are so incredibly effective. And let me show you how it works here. What Satan does is Satan tempts us, right? And then Satan comes along after he tempts us and he accuses us. Like, how dare you think those thoughts? And again, it goes back to this reality that we think all thoughts are our own and they're not. Like Satan puts thoughts in our mind. And so he tempts us, then he accuses us for being tempted. (laughs) It's like, how dare you let me tempt you? And then we feel defeated, right? Oh, I'm so terrible. I let myself get tempted. Oh, I'm so terrible. Might as well commit the sin. And we commit the sin, and then he accuses us. (laughs) And that's just the reality of how Satan works. He accuses us. And it goes back to this thing again, that not all of my thoughts are my own. Once we agree with the accusation, we're in trouble. We're going to be defeated. So reality check, every thought I have is not mine. Just know that. As you go through life, every thought that comes into your head is not your own thought. Satan puts thoughts there. The world puts thoughts there. Sin puts thought there. Puts thoughts there. And uh, yeah, and especially if we know Christ, we need to know those thoughts are not our own. Those desires are not ours. They're contrary to who we are. Revelations 12.10 just says this about Satan. This isn't really speaking of us. This is in the, in the tribulation time. But listen to what we learn about Satan. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan is an accuser. That's what he stands before God and simply accuses you all day before God. Do you know what Bill was thinking? Did you hear what Bill just said? Did you see how Bill responded to that situation? You know what Bill was thinking of doing? You know, and he just accuses, 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 accuses. And he does that to wear us down, to burn us out. The, the thing is, Satan knows the truth. Satan understands his days are numbered. Like he understands the cross. He understands the, that the war is over. He understands that he lost. So why does he, keep, why does he keep accusing us? Because it is so effective. And maybe you can remember sometime this week when he whispered in your ear some form of an accusation i thought of something this week i never thought of before kind of kind of step back that's pretty cool that's pretty interesting you know what i think satan likes the law you ever think about that like if you have law and grace what do you think satan likes more law or grace satan loves the law he loves the law man god should have written 20 commandments or 1000 command you know god should have more laws because why because he can take when we break those laws he can come along and say see you broke another law and he can accuse us, and he can, he can accuse us again, and he can, he can use the law to accuse us and abuse us. He can use the law to beat us up and tear us down. He can use the law to make you feel like you never measure up, like you're never good enough. Now, in a sense, God uses the law that way, right? God uses the law to say you're a sinner, you need salvation, you need grace, but that's the point. God uses the law to pivot us right back to grace because that's our only hope. The cross. 
And so Satan hates grace because grace takes away his ability to accuse us. Now it's true, Satan will use other tactics. He'll take grace and he'll twist it around and he'll, he'll cause us to think, well, we can just abuse God's grace. I get all that. But if you had to choose, he would much rather have law than grace. Satan is the accuser of God's children. That's just what he does. He just accuses us, points the finger at us. Now, back in verses 33 and 34, here's what it says. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's kind of a rhetorical question. If you know the gospel, that's kind of rhetorical, right? But then he says, it is God who justifies, who is to condemn. And the point of this is really simple. He phrases the question twice in two different ways. But it's basically this basic question, who can ever condemn you or find you guilty if you're part of God's family? And and so the reality is, well, there's this thing called justification. What's justification? justification is it's just as if I never sinned. It's like the reset button on my life. It's like I committed all these sins and I get saved and God pushes the reset button and it's just like I never sinned. I'm, I'm, I'm made perfect again. He takes away all my sin. In fact, I like to up the ante and say it's just as if I will never sin because that's what he does. He just forgives me for all my sin, past, present, and future and all my future sins wiped out. It's like I will never sin again. It's like I am Adam in the garden before the fall. I live in this broken body, yes, but spiritually, that's who I am. It's an amazing, an amazing, amazing thing. Romans 8, first verse in this chapter, going back to the first verse of Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And you know why you can't be condemned, right? We understand why we can't be condemned. Because we have been, what? God alone has justified us. That's what he says. God alone has justified us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. If God is the justifier, well, hey, you're good to go. Now, can we justify ourselves? No, we often try to do that. But we don't even need to. If God has justified us, then I don't need to justify myself. You know, there's another thing that clicks up here that I think that, that brings some clarity to this that I saw this week. And I know I get some pushback on this one because we talk about the reality that we are totally forgiven. Like, when we're saved, we're like totally forgiven. Like, we don't have to every day go and say, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry, forgive me for this sin, forgive me for that sin, forgive me for the next sin. It's like we would be on our knees all day. But, but, but I, I say that, and I know some people struggle with that. And the, and the reality is, though, it connects up here. And I was thinking about justification, right? Like, how are we justified? We're justified by the blood of Christ. And what does God do? Does God pour a little bit of blood out each day and justify you for Monday and justify you for Tuesday and justify you for, or, or redeem me, I should say, redeem me for Monday, redeem me for Tuesday, redeem me for, no, he redeems me once and for all. He redeems me, he buys me back, I am now his. And he forgives me in the same way. And the reality is, why am I forgiven? We're not forgiven because we apologize and ask for forgiveness. That's not why we're, we're forgiven. Why? Because of the blood of Christ. The same way I'm redeemed, I'm forgiven. And he redeems me once for all for the rest of my life, buys me back, and he forgives me of all my sins once for all, and it's done. I am totally forgiven. Hebrews really drives this home. But 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he does that. He cleanses us from what? When we ask for forgiveness, all unrighteousness, once for all. That's salvation. That happens at salvation. In fact, I thought there's a fascinating way to look at this. Um, 
this goes back again to how we're justified, right? Or how we're redeemed. For you know that it was not with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life you inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. We were redeemed by the blood of Christ, the blood of the lamb. So here's the thing. Our salvation is a package deal. And I thought about this is really cool to think about it this way. It's like when you're saved, you get the salvation package. And in that salvation package is everything. And most people look at this and think, yeah, this is all done at salvation. But there's a couple things that, yeah, like justification, okay, when I'm made right and forgiven. Well, that, that happens day by day. Like day by day, I ask for forgiveness. But no, we don't. Sanctification, people think, well, we're sanctified progressively, like we're gradually every day made holy. And no, we're not. We're made holy once for all. We're made righteous, righteous enough that Christ can come and live in me. That's how holy I am. Christ lives in me. Now, are all my behaviors sanctified? No. Are all my thoughts and my attitudes and my actions sanctified? No, that's what I have to do now. I have to sanctify my behaviors because God has sanctified me. He set me apart. Now I need to set apart all my behaviors. But think about this. Everything that happens here, propitiation to make happy. God is entirely happy with me. He's never going to be angry with me again or unsatisfied with me again because he finds happiness in what Christ has done, not in what I do that makes sense reconciliation to make peace restoration to make new uh, reconciliation to make alive or that's wrong that's regeneration sorry regeneration to make alive i messed up my slide bummer adoption is to make family and future glorification is to make whole and all of that the minute we're saved that is all ours and the only thing on there that's really future tense is just one day we get a new body when we go to glory Everything else happens immediately. And so we come along here and we say, you cannot be accused of anything. God has done everything. And you are entirely His. And Satan loves to accuse us and loves to tear us down. Don't let him. Do not let him. Who can accuse you, Paul says? It's God who justifies. He redeemed us and He justified us. And yeah, it is all done. How beautiful is that? When it comes to hurling accusations, Satan can't, God won't, and you shouldn't. Okay? Satan can't, God won't, and you shouldn't. You shouldn't even condemn yourself. Now, we say the Spirit defends me in this whole thing, and let me show you one last thing here, Romans 8, 14. For all who, led, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For, you did, for who, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Here's how it works. Before you know Christ, you are a soul, which is your personality and your thinker and feeler and chooser. You are a soul that has a spirit that is dead to God, and you live in a body. And when you come to Christ, and when He does that salvation process and justifies you, you then become a what? You then become a spirit who is alive to God, and you have a soul, you have a personality, and a thinker, and a feeler, and a chooser, and you, are not, and you live in a body. And, uh, and here's what's going on. Once you're saved, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, and Christ makes your spirit alive, and so inside of you as a believer, there's this conversation going on every day between you and the Holy Spirit. And what's the Holy Spirit saying to you? You're a child of God. You're holy. You're righteous. You're set apart. In fact, I often say God doesn't convict us today of sin. 
He doesn't convict us of sin today because we're not guilty. We can't be convicted of sin. We can't be accused. So what does he do? He convicts us of righteousness. John 16, I think, says that. He convicts us of righteousness. He says, hey, <laughs> I, I sin. And I'm like, oh, I'm righteous. I'm a child of God. Child, the, the, the children of God don't behave that way. They don't think that way. They don't act that way. They don't say those things. They don't, whatever. And I'm convicted of my righteousness so that I will live according to God's grace. And it's just a beautiful thing. And the Spirit's defending me. So when Satan attacks me, the Spirit says, oh, time out. You can't accuse him. He's a child of God. He's royalty. And he speaks that to me and tells me, hey, don't listen to that accusation. That's why you need the helmet of salvation on. The breastplate of righteousness and you need all of this armor on. It's an amazing thing. You know, uh, John Newton wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace. I found another song that he wrote. And, um, and I, I'd have never heard of this song before back in 1791. Listen to these lyrics of this hymn here. It's a great thing. Approach my soul, the mercy seat. Here's three verses. Bow down beneath a load of sin by Satan sorely pressed. By war without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side. I may my fierce accuser face and tell him, thou hast died. Five, oh, wondrous love to bleed and die, to bear the cross and shame, that guilty sinners such as I might plead thy gracious name. Wow, what some great work, great lyrics by the great John Newton. Oh, how wonderful is that. Again, God fought for me so he could fight for me. He fought for me so he could fight for me. He wants me on his side so he can be on my side, so he can fight for me. And so, again, temptation, when I am tempted, Jesus delivers me. Tribulation, when I am hurting, the Father comforts me. And accusation, when I am accused, the Spirit defends me. And one last one this morning. Oh, before I do that, a little theological nugget I found in Romans 8. Fascinating. I never, never saw this before. If you've noticed what I've done this morning, I said Jesus delivers us. The Father comforts us and the Spirit defends us. And you could flip those around because the Holy Spirit comforts us and, as well as the Father. You could interchange those. But what I did was I showed how the Trinity is fighting for us. Like all three members of the Trinity are fighting for me. And what I discovered in Romans 8 as a whole, you want to do something cool this week, read through Romans 8 and just see how the Trinity is, is interwoven in this chapter. It's one of the greatest Trinitarian chapters in the Bible where you see the Father and you see the Son and you see the Spirit all working together. It's an amazing thing. And I'm sure there's other chapters like it. It's just we don't often think of those things. And it just struck me how awesome that is in this chapter. So, temptation, tribulation, accusation, last one, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who shall be against us? We're talking about fabrication. Yes, when I am lied to, God is the truth. God is, and he doesn't just tell me the truth. God is the truth. When I am lied to, and let me just tell you, in 2022, you're going to be lied to a lot in 2022. You're going to be lied to an awful lot. Just know that God is the truth. If he's on your side, you have the truth. And a couple things that, that Satan does with the truth, just briefly here, is he likes to take a little bit of, or when it comes to lying, he likes to take the truth and just take, take a little bit of truth, a little nugget of truth, and then he likes to just kind of twist it into a lie and confuse us. And it's like, it looks like it's true. We see a little bit, bit of truth in there, and so we believe it, and it's like, no, it's actually 
it's, it's actually a lie. You know, it really is. And so we need to know that how he does that. And we need to know that when he lies, we need to just flee from him and don't listen to his lies. Something else Satan's really good at doing is playing with our emotions when we're vulnerable. He knows how to play with our emotions and then lie to us at the same time. And uh, we're hurting and he's like, you know, God doesn't care about you. You know, yeah, you know, it's like... Uh, and, and another thing he does that's so prevalent going back to last week is he's good at convincing us that we're fighting someone we're not fighting. Like he's really the enemy in the spiritual battle. But he's really good at convincing us that no, our spouse is the enemy or our children are the enemy or that coworker's the enemy or my neighbor's the enemy. Somebody else is the enemy. And no, my enemy is this unseen entity, Satan, and sin in the flesh. That's the enemy. But he's very good at saying, oh, I'm not the enemy. I'm not the bad guy in this. And yes, you are. He's good at stirring up dissension and then stepping back and watching us all fight. He's really, really good at doing that. He is good at doing that. Well, let me give you this, this one point about this before we close with two observations here. Know this, the greatest, the biggest lie that Satan's going to tell me this year, just know this, that God is not on my side and that he is not fighting for me. That if you know Christ as your Savior, the biggest lie Satan's going to tell you and feed you over and over and over again, God's not on your side. God's not fighting for you. God doesn't love you. God doesn't care about you. If he did, this wouldn't be happening, that wouldn't be happening, this wouldn't be going on. That's just the, the way he works. And if you don't know Christ, his biggest lie to you is, yeah, you, you can handle life. You, can, you, don't need, you, don't need, you don't need that guy. I mean, look at all the problems in the world. If he was in control of the world, there wouldn't be all these problems. Yeah, you don't need him. It's like you can handle life on your own. And the whole time, you're like, I can't really handle life on my own. But yeah. Satan will lie to us and just tell us, you know, yeah, don't put your faith and trust in God. He's untrustable. Let me leave you with this then going deeper and I want to just close with these verses here at the very end. Again, God fought for me so he could fight for me. Look at this here in Romans 8, 37. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And I love what he says there, that we are more than conquerors. And I thought, what does that mean? To be more than a conqueror. And I think on one level, it's kind of like, you know, it's, we're in a spiritual war, but it's like, it's not about the war. Like we're in a spiritual war, but it's really not about the war. Last week we said that the undefeatable God is on our side. Do you know why God is the undefeatable God? Is it because he never lost a battle? Is that why he's undefeatable? He's undefeatable because he can't lose a battle. He can't lose. It's impossible for God to lose. Like Hebrews says, it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lose. There's no battle he can't lose. If he's fighting on your side and you're embracing that and you're trusting him and letting him fight for you, you'll never lose a battle. Whenever you lose a battle, it's because you, you, you kind of took over and started fighting the wrong enemy or fighting the wrong way or whatever. And so he says we are more than conquerors and I think to a degree that we're not supposed to focus so much on our, our life is not about this war we're in. In fact, what did Jesus say on the cross? What's the last thing Jesus said on the cross? It is, what did he not say? I have won. 
Well, no, that was a given. If he's fighting, it's, an, it's inevitable that he's going to win. And it was inevitable that he would finish the work, but he's just announcing, okay, it's done, it's finished. It was inevitable that he would finish the work. It's inevitable that he would win. He didn't say, now I have won. He said, it is finished. And that is to a degree, our focus in life is just finishing the battle that we're in, knowing that we're going to win if God's on our side. And we know that, right? We're going to glory for all of eternity if, if we know Christ is our Savior. How awesome is that? And so here's the deal. We are more than conquerors. We are actually testifiers. And in 2022, more than being a conqueror, why don't you be a testifier and say, you know what? God is on my side, and because God is on my side, I can show you how great, how powerful, how awesome, how wonderful, how amazing God is. This is the God who's fighting for me. The only reason I'm standing, the only reason that I'm making it through all the trouble in the world today, I'm more than a conqueror. I'm a testifier of the goodness and the greatness and the power of God. I'll leave you with this then. Nine weeks ago, New Year started, and you nine weeks ago could have sat down at your kitchen table and wrote out your five, four, three, eight, whatever resolutions. And you could have resolved in the year ahead, you could have resolved that you were going to eat more healthy, exercise more vigorously, read your Bible more faithfully, and pray more intensely. And you could have done that nine weeks ago, and the truth is, statistics overwhelmingly tell us that if you did that nine weeks ago, that today, right now today, most likely today, you broke all those resolutions. They all failed. They didn't work. You know what else you could have done, though? Nine weeks ago, you could have done what most of you did. You could have come here every Sunday. You could have listened to the sermon series. And you, you could have learned about God's resolutions. Let me tell you something. Let me, let me tell you something. Let me say it to you like this. While nine weeks in and having already failed all of our New Year's resolutions, take heart for this. God has not failed His. God, and He won't fail them all year. And God will continue to fight for you all year. He's resolved to do a work in you. If you'll just step back and say, Lord... You can have my life. I'll embrace whatever you want to do. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that it's not about what I do for you. It's about what you have done for me, what you want to do in me and through me. If I'll just get out of the way and say, Lord, my life is yours. That you have set me apart and made me holy and now I will, I will set apart my behaviors and my attitudes and my actions. And Lord, I just pray for anyone this morning, we just, this is the, the thrust of our church all the time, that if someone has not simply come to you and received you, if they, if they have not come to the point of just believing, yeah, I, I believe, I'm a sinner, I've wronged a holy God, I, I believe he died on the cross and he rose again, and I want to receive his life, I want to receive his forgiveness. I want him on my side, I want him fighting for me. I just pray if anyone in this room today needs to do that, you'll just speak to their heart. And they can right now in their heart just, just invite you in, just receive you. And for the rest of us, Lord, may we just know that you're fighting for us in 2022. May we just be prepared for the attacks of the enemy. May we be ready to hear from you all year long and, to, and just follow you wherever you lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. And amen.